Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. Well, hey, welcome back. I'm Chris Shandro, the pastor at Compass. I'm really glad that you are with me today because this is the last week in our Child's Play message series. And today we're going to tie up some of the loose ends on this section of Jesus's teaching that we've been looking at for the last several weeks. And the reason that I want to take a whole message to recap all of this is because what Jesus has been teaching here sets up what we're going to be talking about really over the next few chapters of Matthew and over the next several weeks. And that is this, power. And we're going to be talking about wealth, influence, gender, human value, proximity to power. And Jesus has been setting the stage for all of this by talking about children in order to explain his relationship uh, with us and God's relationship with us. But it's also to begin a broader conversation about power. Who has it? Who doesn't? How power functions in his kingdom and among his followers. I mean, this whole section of teaching we've been looking at started with a question his disciples asked him about power. And we see it here in Matthew 18.1. About that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, the disciples, they didn't ask this question because they had some sort of general curiosity about it. What they were really asking is, which one of us is going to be the greatest in your kingdom? Who's going to be your number one guy? Who's going to be at the top of the food chain and get to call all the shots? That's a simple question they asked, but Jesus doesn't give a simple answer. In fact, in in the long answer that Jesus gives to this question, he bounces around so much that it may not actually be clear what his single takeaway is. And while this may seem confusing, we've all experienced this before because we all know what it's like to take away something different than someone else out of a conversation, even though we've all heard the exact same thing. So let me illustrate this. For example, take the phrase, I never said you were stupid. That's straightforward, right? But a little bit of emphasis can change how this is heard. Because if I say, I never said you were stupid, it implies that someone else did. And that maybe I was involved in that conversation. But if I say, I never said you were stupid, that implies that I think you are stupid. I just never said it out loud. And if I said, I never said you were stupid, it implies that while I never used the word stupid to describe you, that I used another word to describe you that is within the general vicinity of stupid. You know, I never said you were stupid. I said you were an idiot. So you can see how words and phrases can have different meanings for different people at different times. And in the same way, I think there are a couple of threads that can be pulled within this whole passage of Jesus's teaching about children that can keep us from seeing the whole of what Jesus is saying and doing here. So I want to take a a second to look at these two threads and see if we can reconcile them. Now, after the disciples asked who would be the greatest, Jesus said this in Matthew 18, 3 through 4. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So, The very first thing that Jesus says in response to the question, who's going to be the greatest, is if you want to be great in my kingdom, you need to be like children. Now, we know that's not literal. Jesus isn't saying literally be like children. I mean, we can't de-age ourselves yet. 
Rather, it's about taking on the qualities of children, being humble, not in the sense of humility where, you know, I know I'm awesome, I just don't act like it, but being humble in the sense that in the same way a child is, is vulnerable, powerless in society, and dependent on adults to care for them, that we also are vulnerable and completely dependent on God. So it's about a posture that we have before God. And this is the first thread that someone might hear from this. And it's an, kind of an up-in-heaven type teaching, right? It's spiritual, philosophical. It's not really a, a go-do-this type of thing, but it's a, a go-and-be-this type of thing. It's a spiritual internal shift that's about how we perceive ourselves in relationship to God. And that's the thread that many people follow here. You know, that my position in God's kingdom is dependent on an internal spiritual change from arrogance to humility, from pride to dependence on God. And this inward spiritual heaven-based approach, I mean, that is a good takeaway. But it's complicated by the next thing that Jesus says in verse 6. Because then he says, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their necks and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. Now, this is a really sharp turn from what Jesus said before, because Jesus just talked about making an individual inward change in our spiritual posture toward God. How we are to take on the qualities of a humble, vulnerable, and dependent child. But then he pivots to something that isn't inward, but it's outward. To not cause people who are vulnerable and dependent to stumble. Now this phrase, causing someone to stumble, it's often thought to mean leading them or leading people into some kind of sin. But the truth is, this Greek phrase, it literally just means to trip up or to set a trap for or to lead someone to harm. And while this phrase is used at times as a metaphor for causing someone to sin, sometimes saying causing someone to stumble just mean what it means, to hurt someone. And in this context, I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Don't cause harm to children or to those who are vulnerable like children. And so with this, that first thread that someone might follow, be like children, it's a very heavenly, spiritual, and inward takeaway. But then there's the second thread, protect and defend children. And this feels different because it's not about how we function in the realms of heaven, but how we live here on earth. It's a, a practical takeaway, a physical, financial, even a political takeaway. This is a real-world takeaway about how to perceive ourselves in relationship to others. And these two threads, be like children and protect children, they run all the way through this passage until they ultimately culminate in the parable of the lost sheep, which is the story of a shepherd who, who left his flock of 99 sheep to go and find one who was lost and vulnerable outside of the herd. You might say that sheep was like a child. And while the parable of the lost sheep is the capstone to Jesus' teaching about children, and it's meant to bring clarity to everything he just said, our understanding of it really depends on which thread we followed, the heaven thread or the earth thread. Let me ask you this. What does it mean for us to go after lost sheep? Is it spiritual or is it practical? 
Is this a heaven thing or an earth thing? Does going after lost sheep mean trying to lead them to a spiritual salvation? Or does it mean caring for their physical needs? Is it about pursuing their souls or protecting their bodies, keeping them from sin or keeping them from harm? Is it evangelism or is it social justice? This divide is all over the church in the United States. I mean, take the issue of gun violence. After a recent school shooting, I posted a graphic of statistics that showed how guns are the leading cause of death among children in our country. And I posted this thing with no commentary at all. I just posted the numbers. The same day, I got a message from another Christian I know who said that this is a spiritual issue and the only way this would ever be solved is when people come to Jesus. It won't be solved by changing laws or taking away guns. They thought that it's a heaven problem that requires a spiritual solution. But then, of course, there are others in the church who say that we have a moral mandate as followers of Jesus to protect our children through legislation, that it's an earth problem that requires a practical solution. And you can see in this the divide between the prioritization of personal spiritual growth and social justice and how it splits so much of the church in the United States today that it can feel like there's just no way that we can come together. That these two threads seem like they are just eternally moving in opposite directions. But there's one tiny little verse that's tucked into what Jesus has been teaching about that I think may be helpful if we take a look at, and it's Matthew 18, 10. It says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. So right after Jesus talks about not creating stumbling blocks for vulnerable people, and right before he tells the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus says that these little ones have angels in heaven that always see the face of God. So what is the purpose of this little statement? Why did Jesus say it and what does it mean? And to fully understand it, I think we need to take a closer look at something Jesus' Jewish audience would have heard that maybe we don't. And it starts with this passage about angels that occurs in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And this is how, what Isaiah writes. I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Now, seraphim are angels. And, and most people would describe angels as beautiful beings. Usually they're white people and they have this long flowing hair. Some would describe angels as fierce warriors that are ready to fight spiritual battles. But Isaiah describes them as beings with six wings. And the truth is, is that any biblical description of angels, I think is less likely to be literal and is more likely to be designed to illustrate some truth about God. Which brings me to this question about Isaiah's description of angels. Why did they have six wings and why were two of them covering their faces? What's that about? Well, take a look at Exodus 33:20. But you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. God said this to Moses and the people of Israel, and and one thing about God that was an absolute truth to those people was that he was so holy that nothing and no one could look at him and live. That's why in the Exodus story, Moses could only look at God from behind as God passed by. And it's also why the angels, with two wings, covered their faces. 
Because to look on God's face was to look at something so holy, so powerful, and so awesome that even the angels couldn't do it. At least until Jesus said, let's look at this again in Matthew 18, 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you, their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. No one can look at God's face and live, right? Moses couldn't. Angels couldn't. No one is great enough in the kingdom of heaven to do it until Jesus says, hang on. There's one group of people who can look on the face of God, one group of people who are so great in God's kingdom that they have face-to-face access with him. It's a group of people who hold such a special place in the heart of God, who are so aligned with what he's doing in this world that they can see him face-to-face. And it's those who are humble, like children. God holds a special place for those who are physically humble, people who are weak, vulnerable, neglected, and abused. And he holds a special place for those who are spiritually humble, people who are vulnerable, dependent, and submitted to God. The truth is, is that these two threads that run through the entire section of Jesus' teaching, the heavenly thread and the earthly thread, they're not separate at all. Instead, they're completely intertwined. Paul said that faith without works is dead. So a focus on inward spiritual growth without outwardly caring for vulnerable people is lifeless. And Paul also said that when he considered all of the outward acts of religion that he'd accomplished, that all of it was rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. That a focus on outward practical change in our world without inward spiritual transformation is garbage. We pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven because it's in that intersection of heaven and earth where Jesus is building his new kingdom. It's where spiritual and physical needs are inseparable and yet both are met. It's where we can see the face of God. And so here's today's takeaway, what we can change and do as followers of Jesus who want to see God work in our lives. Practice humility and protect the humble. Practice humility and protect the humble. The kingdom of God is heaven and earth coming together with both inward change and outward mission. And it's full of people who become like children and are protecting children. People who are dependent on God and those who are dependent on others to make it in this world. And we can't claim inward change without outward mission. We can't claim outward mission without inward transformation. And these two threads are bound together with humility. And those with humble circumstances and humble hearts, those are the people that God shows his face to. So as we close all this out, I want to talk to three different groups of people. First, you may be heaven-minded, a person who is entirely focused on spiritual growth. You read all the books, you go to all the Bible studies, and you pray all the time. But you're so heavenly-minded that you are of no earthly good. And I would encourage you, keep seeking God. Keep growing spiritually. Continue praying. But also, be the answer to someone's prayer. Take your spiritual transformation into the real world. Get your hands dirty defending and protecting the children in our world, the poor, the sick, the marginalized, and the vulnerable. Second, you may be earth-minded, a social justice warrior, And you want to see every physical need met. And you are working so hard to lift people out of the mud. 
but you're doing it in your own strength and you're neglecting your own soul. I would encourage you, keep working for the good of the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow, but be nourished and transformed on the inside by seeking the face of God individually. Let your work in the world still happen, but let it be powered by the love and strength of the Holy Spirit. And finally, you may be someone who's weak, vulnerable, and in need right now. Life has put you in a corner and you can't get out of it on your own and you need help. I want you to know that God sees you. That the very face of God is looking down on you and that in your time of need, you are precious to him. So reach out for help to both God and the community of believers around you, knowing that in your humble and difficult circumstances, that you are great in his kingdom. So may we be people who practice humility and protect the humble, a community where heaven and earth are coming together and a church that sees the face of God as together we pursue spiritual maturity while we also protect the vulnerable in our world. May we be like children and protect those who are like children. Thanks for joining me and I will see you next time. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com.